Hello everyone, and welcome to what was supposed to be episode 50, but um, I'm releasing it before I release episode 49, because I still haven't actually finished episode 49 yet, and I really wanted to get this out before I went on holiday, because I think it is a very interesting interview, and I absolutely loved speaking to Helen, and I wanted to get this up as soon as I could. So here you are, here's the episode 50, or episode 59 or episode 49, sorry, whatever you want to call it. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 50 of Hidden Wings and Bloodlust, a podcast dedicated to ladybugs and ladybirds around the world. I'm your host, Rachel. And today on the show, we've got one of the leading experts on ladybirds, I think, definitely, certainly in the UK, but possibly in the world as well. Um, Helen Roy is a British ecologist, entomologist, academic, specialising in aphids and non-native species. Since 2007, she's been a principal scientist and ecologist at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. And she is also the co-organiser of the UK Ladybird Survey and is current president of the Royal Entomological Society. So hello, Helen, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rachel. It's really wonderful to be with you. Oh, thank you. So... So firstly, I just wondered, um, what kind of got you interested in sort of ladybirds and studying ladybirds, like originally? So I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in the natural world and when it wasn't just absolutely captivating to me. So even as a, a small child, I was always looking at things, watching things, asking my very patient grandparents and um, parents questions about things that I was seeing in the garden, for instance. And um, in 1976, I was six years old. Oh, yeah. There was a huge ladybird year. I mean, it's, uh, what a privilege that I can remember it, even though I was just six. Yeah. The numbers were incredible. And in our back garden, which was in a very small back garden on the Isle of Wight, Mm. I could see all the different life stages of, I didn't know at the time, but that they were seven spot ladybirds. Mm, mm. I have since found out that there probably were other species in there, of course, as well, like 11 spot ladybirds. I really cannot say I was noticing that they were different. But what I was noticing was that when the adult ladybird came from its pupa, it was really bright yellow, really that lovely translucent colour. And to see the different colour developments, because there were just so many adult ladybirds emerging in the back garden, was just magical. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. I mean, I remember when I was when I was a kid, I think it was like 1995. There was like, it wasn't as big as 1976, but there were loads of, but I think it was kind of like a localised, maybe like a localised version of it. There were like so many um, sort of, swarms of ladybirds like in the sort of front garden and stuff and like on the road and and everything and I think most of them were seven spots but there was also I remember like being kind of fascinated by I think I'm pretty sure now they were 10 spots but kind of like this sort of this sort of checkered the checkered yeah. color of some of the 10 spots yeah yeah so I just wondered you know I ask everyone this usually uh what was the last ladybird that you saw So yesterday I saw a seven spot ladybird Mm. and I was visiting my niece at the University of Liverpool Mm. and um, it was on a path across the campus at the University of Liverpool and I was very keen that it would move off the path because Mm. at this time they're a little bit cold and they're not quite as agile as they are on the warmer days. So I waited and watched and was very relieved to see it sort of Mm. slightly stumbling flight, but nevertheless, it flew away. Um, And I recorded it on iRecord and it was beautiful to see. Yeah. Uh, A couple of 
uh, I saw a seven spot on the wall, I think it was the day before yesterday. And then I also saw, I was really surprised actually, like in the graveyard. And it was kind of strange because there wasn't actually any pine trees nearby, but I saw an eyed ladybird on, on a wow. gravestone. Beautiful. I was really, really, I was really surprised because there wasn't actually any trees that it would normally be in. Beautiful. Yeah. Actually, I have seen a ladybird today as well because I'm mm. always, whenever I have a, just a few moments even outside yeah. on a busy yeah. work day, I'm always looking for ladybirds. And um, actually, I was uh, visiting my dad on the Isle of Wight today. And yeah. while I was queuing for the ferry, I'm also always looking if there's like a, like a, um, a light with a casing around mm. it or anything that might have some cobwebs and bits of beetle and all kinds of things or like along a windowsill if it hasn't been cleaned mm. in a place I'm always looking to see if I can see a wing case or anything like that yeah. and there was a two-spot ladybird caught up in a spider's um, web oh, with no. one of these light fittings going onto the ferry so yeah no live ladybirds today mm. but I, can I also saw one. a dead lady dead harlequin ladybird yesterday I think it I think it had like a similar similar situation there. Similar fate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um tell me about the Ladybird survey. So the UK Ladybird Survey is um coordinated by Peter Brown at Anglia Rusk University and myself at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. And um we do this as, as volunteers because it's just such a pleasure and there's been a ladybird survey in the UK for a long time since the early mm. 1970s and um, over the years it's been run by some really amazing entomologists and um, in the 1980s it was led by somebody called Professor Mike Majerus from the University mm. of Cambridge and he really tried to increase the kind of public awareness of ladybird recording and mm-hmm. he got a lot of new people involved and that was really fantastic so we saw a huge burst of activity in the records during that time i was on um sabbatical leave um research doing a research project with him in um 2004 when the harlequin ladybird first arrived mm-hmm. and um we saw this as an opportunity to put the ladybird survey online and encourage people to record their sightings of harlequin ladybirds and um so that's what we did and we did a lot of interviews we wrote a huge amount and worked um on some more sources to try and make some um, more easily accessible resources for people to be able to use, putting information yeah. on the website and things like that. And we saw a huge um, increase in the interest of recording ladybirds. And it's just been just a dream experience because mm. Peter and I get to meet so many people, mostly online and mostly through iRecord, who share our enthusiasm for ladybirds. And we've had many, many thousands of records mm. coming through Really sadly, Professor Mike Majerus um, died in 2009, Mm. but he did see the early days of the success of how it was to put the survey online. And he was tremendously excited by it and um, just tremendously heartened by the way in which people um, were getting involved with Ladybird recording. So it will go on and on for decades, I hope for centuries to come, and um, will always be a place where people can share their excitement and their stories about Ladybirds. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. Because I mean, I haven't actually recorded recorded any of my sightings in a while, but like, I don't know that when I have, like, sometimes I've even seen like someone else in my neighbourhood obviously looking for ladybirds and recording what is there and obviously it's become it's become such a it's become such a massive thing and you wouldn't necessarily even know that it was like a popular thing and unless you go online and see what's out there yeah and I feel like Pete and I kind of coordinate and we coordinate the survey and we go online and look at the records and things like that but I genuinely feel like it's everyone's survey it's you know when I hear the stories of people who are engaging other people within their communities. For example, this wonderful woman on the Isle of Man mm. who, when um, she's out doing sort of field parties for the um, on the nature reserves and things, she's engaging other people in yeah. recording and sharing their records. And that seems to me to be happening all across the country in places that there are other people who are very much coordinating the Ladybird survey um, as well. So it feels like a truly collaborative mm. um, survey. Yeah. Is it anything equivalent to that, like in other countries? Do you know? 
So we've been working with people across um, Europe to set up the European Ladybird Survey. And yeah. there's really yeah. fantastic activity in many European countries. Um, and um, we have a smartphone app um, mm. for people wherever they are across Europe to be recording yeah. um, ladybirds. In um, Chile, there's um, amazing people, Audrey and Tanya, who run a ladybird survey um, for Chile. Oh, wow. And an amazing person called Victoria in Argentina who has set up a survey in recent years in Argentina. So it's definitely growing. Um, and it's a really wonderful global community of people sharing ideas and sharing resources and and of course, there's iNaturalist as well, which many people yeah. are contributing to, and that sees many ladybird records as well. Yeah. Can I just ask, sorry, what's your favourite ladybird? So I'm really fickle on my favourite ladybirds. So it does <laughs> change quite a bit. But I oh, consistently love the heather ladybird. And in part, I like it because its Latin name refers to it having kind of two splodges on either wing case. But actually, it looks like the sort of band of a stripe of six through on wing case. And it's because that one splodge has got sort of slightly dissected. And I just I don't know why that really appeals to me that there's, there's something about this splodge that's not quite it's a bit maverick. And I love I just love that about the Heather Lady Bunny. So I've only ever seen a Heather Ladybird once. It's a very kind of like narrow red line across the middle of it. Yeah, it is. And it looks slightly punctuated in places. And But its name mm. is Bipashulatus. And um, that, yeah. But the, so I do love, I love it for that reason. I mean, I don't know whether that's a good reason. I also really love the orange ladybird. And I just, because it's again, quite a quirky little ladybird. Um and feeding on mildew and just having this different life history. And it's around a lot later on in the year. So I love that I can still see it later on. I, I could easily now list all the ladybirds and tell you a reason why they would all be my favourite at any one time. Um, I did a lot of work during um, my PhD studies on seven spot ladybirds. And so I have. I feel I know them really well. I feel like I lived and breathed with them for the three years of my PhD so yeah, I think I could probably go through most of the most of the British ladybirds and tell you a reason why they might be my favourite. <laughs> it's tricky, but let's. But I'll put Heather Ladybird up there at the top for today. Okay, cool. Yeah, I um. So I really like. I mean, I I do really like the sixteen spot. Oh yeah, beautiful. Because again, it's it's quite an unusual ladybird, um, and I like the fact that it kind of. You know, when you when you see a sixteen spot, you never just see one. <laughs> you yeah. always just see like millions. <laughs> I know. I I also love it, and I always if I'm if I'm walking and particularly in a slightly damp place, I'm always looking in the fence posts, in yeah. the cracks and fence posts, just in the hope. And there's one fence post where I know now near here always has sixteen spot ladybirds um, on it, and that's fantastic. I've also been seeing people. Um, sending in their photos of dandelions where they've been mm. doing these flowering set time counts for pollinator surveys and they often seem to have quite a few 16 spot ladybirds mm. within them so again I look on dandelions a lot but I'm yet to see a 16 spot ladybird on a dandelion but other people are seeing them I mean I haven't I think I might have seen it once but I don't think the other ladybird I also really like is um, at, the mo at the moment of course like there's always a reason to like to like all of them, but like yeah. <laughs> the other ladybird I quite like at the moment is the ten spot, like just because of how yeah. variable it is. Yeah, it, it's stunning. Every time you find a ladybird, you think, "Oh, I've not seen that. But what is it?" And it's probably a ten spot. <laughs> yeah, it's the most confusing one, isn't it? And that immaculata colour form yeah. with the kind of red bands on the black, it just seems preposterous that that is the same one as yeah. that spotty orange yeah. one and. Yeah, really. Um. I mean, I remember finding the a black uh, 10 spot that was almost black and never having seen it before. And I went home and asked on Facebook, what's this? And they were like, it's a 10 spot. I was like, how can it be a 10 spot? I know, they are amazing. <laughs> and I feel, yeah, that they are the most confusing mm. one. And um, I think because they can um, look like, so, so for example, the really spotty one 
in a photo, it could look like a harlequin ladybird. Of course, they're so tiny in comparison to the harlequin ladybird that when you see them um, out and about, they're less confusing. But then, yeah, the other color forms, like the checkered one looks really like 14 spot yes. ladybirds. Yeah. You can look really hard at that little marking just directly behind the head, and that's really variable. But yeah, they are really stunning and they're so tiny. They are. And yeah, very, very lovely. Then I feel like we should mention the really tiny ladybirds. And another of my favorites is Nephesquatra maculatus, which is a little one that you find on the ivy. And when the sun is shining, even though it's really tiny, like under two millimeters, you can still see it by eye because mm. the little red dots on it just glisten. And I, that to me is, an, they're exquisite as well. I've actually uh, once found one um, when I was doing some, um, doing like a sort of recording day at um, Perryvale Wood. I found a Nephesquadri maculatus and it looks mm. so small. It looks so small. You actually think, is that is that a ladybird? Like, <laughs> <laughs> really, really stunning. We have them near here, mm. and actually, when we were um, working from home through the pandemic, mm. I had one just landed on my desk, which was amazing. Yeah, really beautiful. Yeah, we've, it was a warm day, and they must have been very flighty. We've got um, so for some reason on our sage plant, we've got a lot of um, simless interruptus ladybirds yeah and that is very um you know again when I first you know the the larvae are are like a white color yeah like little hamsters yeah (laughs) and I was kind of thinking "Mm, what is that oh it's a lady (laughs) it's a ladybird and there's there's like loads of them yeah so that's a lovely one for people to see and probably possibly to get a new at least 10k record if they see them and people can recognize them by that really broad red triangle that they have across their their wing cases which is yeah really great so these tiny little ladybirds I think they are less recorded than the the larger ladybirds obviously for obvious reasons but they are really distinguishable from one another and mm. very worth worth looking out for yeah and also I think um you know when I've done like sort of some like recording in nature reserves and stuff like you know you never think that you'd actually find some of the ones like like Rosobius latura or yes. and you and yes. you end up and you end up um looking at what you found like oh there's no ladybirds in here oh there is <laughs> yes yes and with the rhizobius people are now yeah, yeah. chrysomeloides as well yeah chrysomeloides yeah now also we have forestieri and lefanti um yeah. as well so it's yeah amazing how um mm. the diversity of the rhizobius and it's nice because they're slightly bigger than mm. some of the smallest ladybirds so they give yeah. us a bit more of a chance definitely so I've sort of in the process of, uh, at the time of this recording, I'm sort of in the process of writing a episode on the Harlequin ladybird. And I want to ask you about it like in a little bit more depth. Um, so I just wondered if you could tell me a bit about it. Yeah, of course. So the Harlequin ladybird is a quite large ladybird in comparison to these tiny little ones we've just been talking about. Yeah. So about mm. six to eight millimeters in size in length. And, yeah. Um, native, its native range is a, a large area across Asia. Mm. It's a very generalist predator. So it feeds on a whole variety of different insects, um, particularly aphids, um, yeah. but also a whole variety of other insects as well. And okay. It was introduced into America as a biological control agent back in 1916 mm. and was actually really good at controlling the aphids. They seem to be very successful. And I say that with some surprise because many of the ladybirds that have been introduced to control aphids have not been so successful at doing what they're supposed to be doing in terms of controlling aphids. Whereas those ladybirds introduced to glass houses, for instance, to control scale insects are a lot better. And that's all to do with the generation time of the pests that they're feeding on. So the aphids are so rapid, the ladybirds can't keep up. Where the scale insects are a lot slower, so the ladybirds can keep up. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the harlequin ladybirds seem to be very successful in America in controlling um, aphids. And there weren't concerns at that time about it escaping more into the wilds. Okay. Then in the 1980s, a number of countries around the world began to introduce harlequin ladybirds for pest control. 
And it was exactly at that time that the first evidence was sort of coming through from America that actually the Harlequin ladybird may well be causing some problems there. Mm. Um, and then the um, within and across Europe, for instance, where the Harlequin ladybird was released, it spread out into the wilds very, very rapidly. Yeah. And um, the concerns really are because it's such a generalist um, predator mm. and also because it has um, several life cycles in a year, whereas like mm. example, the seven spot ladybird just has one generation in a year. Mm. Um, so it reaches really high. And um, so the concerns are that it, it will feed on, on other insects. It will feed on the other ladybirds, lace wings, um, hoverflies, uh, caterpillars, all kinds of things. And what we're really trying to understand um, within the sort of research community and working with all the amazing volunteers who are contributing records is whether we can observe any declines in any other species because of the harlequin ladybird. And because we have such fantastic data in the UK from all of these decades and even over hundreds of years, um, we mm. were able to look at whether there was any kind of link between areas where the harlequin ladybird is and distribution declines of other species. And we saw this very, very strong correlation between the presence of the harlequin ladybird and two spot ladybirds declining really dramatically. Yeah. So we feel we have the first sort of evidence that that is indeed the case. And really there's the need for a better understanding of what does that mean in terms of our sort of communities of ladybirds but actually, then when we looked more widely and we looked at the data for eight ladybird species in the UK, we saw seven of eight out of eight of them showed some distribution declines because of the harlequin ladybird. Okay. So that's, um, yeah, so the harlequin ladybird is very much in the UK to stay. Uh, when, in fact, it's a global invader. So you can find it pretty much everywhere other than Australia, the Arctic and Antarctica. But otherwise, it's pretty much everywhere. And um, there isn't anything that can be done about it. And, and that's really the thing about um, insect, alien insects that invade in other places, is once they've arrived somewhere, they're very, it's very difficult to do something about them. Um, so now, if I was to go out and um, record ladybirds in the village where I live, which is in just south of Oxford, Probably 80% of the ladybirds I found, if I was surveying the deciduous trees, would be harlequin ladybirds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I just wondered as well, like, could there be another explanation for the declines or is it just like so strongly correlated to, um, to the two spot declining? I mean, could there be another explanation like climate change or? Yeah, it's a really, really excellent question. And we know often it's not just one factor acting in isolation. And um, certainly when we've looked at data across um, more countries across Europe, um, the Harlequin ladybird is still implicated in the declines, but definitely mm. land use change, um, intensive um, agriculture, these things will also have an impact on the ladybirds as well. So for sure, it's not just one mm. thing, mm. but there is no, no doubt in terms of this correlation that the Harlequin ladybird is playing a part. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, where the Holoquin ladybird is from originally, like, I think it's um, the area in Asia where it's from. Does it cause mm. a problem for for other ladybirds there, or is it okay? Is it is it okay there? Or so it is a top predator there as well. So I've been to China and seen the Holoquin ladybird at home, and it is highly abundant and mm. um is a top predator um but of course it's it's been there for a very very long time mm. so mm. it is part of that community assemblage having said that people do report that because it comes into buildings in the winter months yeah um, to aggregate in large numbers it has that same behavior um mm. in its native range as well and so it is thought of a little bit of being a human nuisance back at home yeah yeah as well as um away um so yeah there are some sort of um uh, of the more sort of adverse effects of it um but then having said that because people know it is a really good pest control they do collect it in large numbers <laughs> and release it out in the fields there as well which you know 
other people do in other parts of the world with some of their native ladybirds as well. They gather them up, they release mm. them in the fields. I'm sure people um, across the UK do that as well, maybe trying to put mm. some ladybirds onto their their rose bushes and um, see whether yeah. they're and why not? But actually what tends to happen is the ladybirds then tend to move somewhere else anyway. <laughs> they choose where they want to feed. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hatched a two-spot out last year from a pupa and it stayed there for weeks um once it had once it had emerged and then it but then I think then one day it just it stayed on the same tree for weeks and then one day I just like it just disappeared and I think that it and I think that it probably just flew away somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're very mobile and um yeah. they 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 make their choices of where they want to be and what they want to be doing um based on mm. a whole variety of different cues they'll be getting from the environment. Mm. So I mean like I just wanted to um, I mean, this is not my view, but I have heard some people say that, you know, we shouldn't worry about the the harlequin ladybird um, threatening other species because it's just like the survival of the fittest. And and I just wanted to know what you what you thought of that. Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, we do, we hear this viewpoint about um, non-native mm. species more broadly that, mm. um, you know, why, why do we need to be concerned? And when we think about the big picture of non-native species in the UK, for instance, we have about 2000 non-native species. Yeah. About 15% of those cause some kind of problem, whether it be yeah. an environmental problem, human health or economic. So we do need to be concerned about that 15%. And then we yeah. do need to make decisions around that 15%. And one thing that we can do is try and prevent the most damaging species from arriving in the first place. And I think most people possibly would agree that preventing the, the harlequin ladybird arriving in the UK would have been a good thing. Um, now that it's here, then of course, people then ask, so, okay, well, we need to live with it. And it's a good aphid controller. So gardeners can be happy and mm-hmm. farmers maybe can be really happy because it's going to be controlling the aphids. And it's a very... Um, a valid viewpoint of course it is however when you think about the diversity of ladybirds and we've talked about that at the start um here and these little 10 spot ladybirds little 14 spot ladybirds they all have slightly different behaviors they all mm-hmm. have slightly different places where they would prefer to forage and where they mm. forage better than the others and so i kind of see it as like this really wonderful kind of if you like mosaic of all of these different ladybirds all playing their their different part which makes one complete picture mm. i don't think just having the harlequin ladybird can make that one complete picture no and actually we know that um for example there are some ladybirds that um wake up from the winter a lot earlier like for example the pine ladybird is quite an early one to wake up others like the 14 spot ladybird wake up a little bit later there'll be times when the harlequin ladybird is a pupa when others are more active and feeding and so all of these different subtleties about the ways in which they go about their lives means that we get resilience of the system because we have that diversity Mm. with the harlequin ladybird dominating yeah since we need to be asking is are our systems still resilient yeah the harlequin ladybird being so dominant yeah okay um also like i've heard i've read that unfortunately i think it was majerus that wrote in one of his books that the seven spot has caused issues like in america yeah. Um, when it was when it was introduced to America, and um, I've read about like the the nine spot ladybird, which is a native American ladybird, like declining when the seven spot was introduced. And I just wanted to know, like, um, can any other ladybirds like end up behaving in the same way as the harlequin? Like, could another one that we that we don't know about start to behave in that way? And um, is there like a way of predicting which ones might do that? Because some of the other ladybirds that have arrived, like in the UK, like I think the Cream Street ladybird, I think that was recorded in like the 1920s and it hasn't really caused an issue. And I just wondered, is there like a way of predicting which one is going to cause a problem or or not? Yeah, no, you know, some of the ladybirds are very specialist and the Cream Mm. Street, although very closely related to the Harlequin ladybird, of course, they're both harmonia. Is much more specialist, much more specialist on um, pines. 
Mm. And the harlequin is generous, not only in what it eats, but also where it will live. And um, the seven-spot ladybird has a lot of behaviors that are very like the harlequin ladybird. And in fact, when I said about we looked at these eight species and seven out of eight um, were showing some declines correlated mm. to the harlequin ladybird, that the, the, the eighth one that wasn't was the seven-spot ladybird. <laughs> so the seven-spot ladybird, I, I sometimes when I'm looking at seven-spot ladybirds and harlequins together in the same area, mm. you can... I think that, and this is a bit anecdotal, and if people could take a look and study this, it'd be fantastic. But I think the seven-spot ladybird manages better when it's on the sort of herbaceous plants than the harlequin ladybird. So the harlequin ladybird does really, really well on trees. But I think in these other kind of lower vegetation settings, it mm. isn't quite as competitive as, for example, the seven-spot ladybird would be my, um, I would put that as a hypothesis, it would need testing. But any of the ladybirds that are large and generalist could potentially mm. be a problem if they arrive somewhere else. Um, mm. And that is the nature of the seven-spot ladybird and um, the harlequin ladybird. And um, that the story surrounding the nine-spotted ladybird in America is, is, a, is a sad story and similar to the two-spot story mm. in mm. the UK. Interestingly, there are two-spot ladybirds are non-native in Japan, for instance, mm. and um, but they're in very restricted, have a very restricted distribution of very low numbers. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, many of these ladybirds as well could survive in different places. But not to that same, you know, not to the sort of level that the Harlequin has within the UK in terms of reaching really high numbers and wide distribution. Yeah, I think the Harlequin ladybird is native to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it, the Harlequin ladybird is native to Japan or parts of it. Yeah, that's right. It's through quite a range of um, across Asia. That's right. Okay. Right up to the Ural Mountains and sort of mainland Asia. Okay. So, I mean, if someone finds a harlequin ladybird, what should they do? Because I'm sorry, I know you probably get asked this question quite a lot. I mean, what should, if someone sees a ladybird that they that is definitely harlequin, like, what should they, what should they do about it? Like, should they kill it? Should they put it somewhere else or just, just leave it? It's another really excellent <laughs> question. Definitely no apology needed. Um, my advice would be to record it where they've seen it. Because some people will ask, do you still want records of the Harlequin ladybird when they're all over um, England and mm. into Wales? Um, and definitely we do still want the records. Even if you've been recording them in the same place year on year since 2004, we definitely want the records. So the first thing I would do is put the record on iRecord. And um, then I would just leave it alone yeah. and um, let it do what it's going to do. And um that that would be my advice yeah okay um yeah also my friend wanted to know um is there a is there because you know how like some certain insects make make sounds like to ward off predators like i think the peacock butterfly does that and there um there are like certain species of cockroach that that do that is there has a ladybird been discovered that that can do that or or not I think it's a really, really fascinating country uh, question. And as much as I have uh, yeah, listened to a lot of ladybirds, I haven't heard more than a kind of brushing of their membranous wings as they open their um, their, their elytra and fly. Um, even, they're, even when they're eating an aphid, they're relatively, relatively quiet. But I feel sure that if your friend um, has expertise in sound, if they were to put a microphone near one, that I'm sure that they could pick up some sounds that we probably are unaware of. Yeah. Um, and that would be really, really interesting to hear. I know that, for example, that there has been sort of recordings of sound from Queen Ants, for instance, and um, which we wouldn't be able to hear, but people have been able to to note that sound. So I most definitely wouldn't rule out. Um, and please tell your friend that I will be trying to listen more carefully to the ladybirds this summer just to check I'm not missing something. Oh no, definitely that would be brilliant. <laughs> also, um, when I was sort of researching a sort of upcoming episode about the cream spot, yeah, I 
was quite surprised because in America the the cream spot um seems to have a lot of different forms whereas in the UK it has only got one form and I just wondered do you know what do you know why that is or no it's fascinating isn't it it's really fascinating because it's so pretty much fixed in the UK although we have had a recent record where it looked really really much much darker Mm, mm. um so you know we do get some variation definitely but not not to that magnitude but then I think it's really interesting just generally why why are these ladybirds of one species varying so Mm. much why is Mm. that 10 spot that you mentioned earlier so color pattern variable because in terms of what they're doing is they're sending out as far as we understand a message to um, predators that might feed on them mm. that they taste horrible mm. and so you'd imagine they would want from an evolutionary perspective to have come up with the same message so that they all say they all are the same message so the predator yeah. can learn it really quickly yeah. and it's a really sort of efficient way of communication so it's really interesting as to why they have this color pattern um, variation anyway and I think there's a variety of really sort of compelling theories about it that I think are fascinating like for example it's thought that maybe some of the less, so they all have a slightly different sort of chemistry of toxic alkaloids within their bodies mm, that give mm. them that horrible taste. And some of the more nice tasting, if you like, <laughs> like the two spots and also 10 spot, they have the chemical adeline. Yeah. That's a more mildly tasting chemical. Um, it's possible that they are mimicking more horribly tasting mm, mm. Um, ladybirds are in their particular area. So we might be seeing the sort of variation when there's a more mir- mirroring the variation of other ladybirds within the, within the vicinity. So, yeah, that's one theory. Then there's other theories around the sort of thermal melanism and the fact that um, you find the um, darker color forms can warm up more rapidly. Mm. I think there can be some sort of thermal effects. Um, so I don't know. It's I think it's still a conundrum, mm. but um, I think it's fascinating. And of course, that it happens around the world is 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 really really interesting, mm. and for different species. Yeah, I think with the I did read somewhere that the two spots, although it's it might be it might have a like nicer taste, although it probably has a still probably it has a horrible taste. But um, I read that like certain certain like wasps and stuff that like target the seven spot um, don't target the two spot or the ten spot to that to that extent. And is there sort of Maybe there, is there like another chemical that's maybe warding off the wasps or? There could be. And it could also be size that those wasps just need a bigger host to develop in. Yeah. Um, but having said that, we have had Dynacampus Cosnelli, the mm. wasp coming out of um, some of the Chiloquini, which are quite small. So mm. um, we've often thought it's to do with the size of the host, but it could it could yeah. be something else. Yeah, or it could be their kind of, yeah, they're a cap encapsulation efficiency some of them will encapsulate the eggs if it gets laid inside mm. okay so what do you think is like being the most surprising thing that you've discovered like about ladybirds while you've been studying them i think that one of the many things i love about ladybirds is there are discoveries for all of us still to make you know there's so much that we still don't know particularly about those tiny little ladybirds and um, so I find that really exciting that whilst they're quite a familiar group to us, they're also just quite a mystery. Like, for example, the color patterns. Mm. We don't know, you know, what's happening there. What's the kind of evolutionary um, implications of those different color patterns and things like that. So I think there's discoveries for us all to make. I think in terms of the discovery that I, one of the ones I most enjoyed was when I read about the fact that um, the ladybirds leave little footprint chemicals behind. Mm -hmm. So I found that really fascinating that they can leave a little trace of chemicals from where they've been Mm -hmm. that can kind of leave a message behind for another ladybird to say, I've been here, I've laid eggs here, I'm going to be using this, I've used this patch. And I found that, that really fascinating that they could leave these little chemicals behind and I also find, and it's sort of linked into that as well, the fact of the decision-making that a female ladybird will make around 
where they lay their eggs and the fact that they can judge the um where the aphid colony is in terms of its sort of population cycle mm. so they don't lay their eggs by an aphid colony that's about to crash and would not be able to support their tiny little hatching larvae and they don't um lay it when it's too early on and not going to be big enough and they use the sort of amount of honeydew that's produced by the aphids and the shed skins of the aphids signals mm. and cues to tell them is this a good place to lay my eggs or not and i i just think that's remarkable that these tiny beetles can make those you know use those cues to make those decisions mm. i remember like last year that i found there was a patch of stinging nettles that looked really like like they definitely seen better days um and they had so many two spots, um, sort of um, so many two spot eggs and uh, larvae and sort of adult ladybirds yeah. on them, and um, and I kind of thought like what like these these sting nettles look so um, sort of tattered that you wouldn't think that they would actually support any kind of aphids on them at all. But of course they were quite infested with aphids, yeah. and I suppose it's like and then I read somewhere that it's like the healthier the healthier the plant is the the less aphids are going to be on it um because the plant can fight back yeah and certainly plants do have a lot of kind of defenses to protect them um from the attack from herbivores and i think also that once they once you see a sort of nettle patch crashing that those ladybirds can then move on to their next patch you know mm. they will then take the cues okay we're done with this patch mm. let's go and find um the next place and i think as well when it comes to the end of the season um mm. you can sort of almost see a desperation with some of the ladybirds that so they 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 might not make the, the logical decisions that they might make <laughs> if there's some logic um in in the ways of a ladybird that they might make earlier on yeah, I read also, I think I read some article somewhere that said that if it's not to do with ladybirds, it's like to do with aphids. If a if you have if you give aphids like a choice of what plant they're gonna be on, and then you like put like the the scent of ladybirds on one of the plants, the aphids will avoid it. Yeah. And they'll yeah. Yeah, I mean, I find this whole system really fascinating and the kind of mm. interplay and games that are being played by the plant, the aphids, the ladybirds, the parasitic wasps of the aphids and the parasitic wasps of the ladybirds and that whole, and then the interactions with other things that eat the aphids, the lace wings, all of that just really fascinates mm. me. And there will be just this massive interplay of chemical signals going on and defences mm. um, cast out to play. And it's just really, really interesting mm. um, to think what's going on. And, and I think that is really magical that someone can just take a look at a nettle plant and there might be aphids mm. and a few ladybirds, maybe a lacing larva, and to really start the stories that are that can unfold. Mm. Um, really incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose, like, also I read as well that the, that the plant can actually kind of produce a chemical that attracts the ladybirds yeah. if it's in trouble yeah. it, it it that that is that was also quite incredible yeah. that if the if the plant is being eaten by aphids it will produce a yes. scent that attracts ladybirds yes. and say like help yeah. like <laughs> it calls in bodyguards there was a paper all about it where they they talked about the calling in of the bodyguards so that yeah once it's under attack that's it it sends out the signals to the wasps and everything else come and come and attack yeah that's pretty incredible so what are you sort of most interested in finding out when it comes to ladybirds and what do we kind of what do you kind of wish that we that we knew it, it would be more around these interactions so just as we've just mm. been talking about then i'm really fascinated by um the interactions amongst species and um back in the 1990s when i was working on my phd it was all about the interactions between the ladybirds the aphids the different plants and also this um, pathogenic fungus of aphids and and how for example that pathogenic fungus can alter the behavior mm. of the aphids that has a knock-on effect to the ladybirds mm. i'm really fascinated by those interactions among species and i would love for us to know more about those and to be able to sort of um, have an idea of the strength of these different interactions because we know these things are happening 
by having a better understanding as to sort of the frequency of some of these interactions would help inform us to what kind of effects maybe the harlequin ladybird is going to have as a consequence mm. how much is it going to change those interactions mm. and i think that um there was a really some really amazing work that i read um a few years ago around the extinction of interactions of some interactions mm. that a species can become in such low numbers that uh, the interactions that it might have had before go extinct mm. And actually that that can be for a system more troubling even than the extinction mm. of the species itself and um, or at least as troubling. So I'm really fascinated by the interactions among species and would love to know more. And I think that there's ways in which um, through the Ladybird survey and other surveys that we can do more to work mm. together to build up this picture of the sort of frequency of different interactions and and what's happening out there on our our nettle patches or on our bean plants or in the apple tree or whatever it might be is that sort of like the the interactions would be like the how like a certain species of wasp and like how it how it behaves towards like a particular ladybird and if that ladybird isn't isn't there like what does it do yeah so you know it might be for example um, which aphids are the, la- are the ladybirds eating? What other mm. things are they eating? What other things are those other things eating? If it's, mm. you know, what host plant are they all on? What's the aphid on? And yeah. just putting together all those bits and pieces of that sort of mosaic that I described so that we have yeah. that better understanding of the interconnections amongst these different species. Mm. I don't know, sorry, I don't know if you know this, but if a if a parasitic wasp attacks an aphid can the ladybird like still eat it or will yes. it get sick or yes so i so part of my um phd work was doing things like that seeing what the late would the ladybird eat an aphid that was infected with a pathogenic fungus yes it will yeah would, it will yeah not when it gets it gets really moldy but at an earlier stage of infection it will and also it will eat uh, uh an aphid um, which has a parasitic wasp within it developing as well. Can it harm the ladybird or is it, would the ladybird be okay? Yeah, no, the ladybird's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and also, I just like when you were talking, I just wondered as well, are there any plants that like can mimic the chemicals of ladybirds like to deter aphids? Oh, I bet there are. I absolutely okay. bet there are. And um, <laughs> we know as well that some, um, yeah, some plants will... Mm-hmm. sort of mimic things that might be of a deterrent nature to those other mm. insects um yeah of all kinds of things and they might be um producing a chemical that's sort of mimicking something else that might be a bit more deadly to that other thing i think there's yeah. all kinds of tricky play going on with these different things and many things that we still don't know about um but definitely, for example, I think there was a study which shows so aphids produce an alarm pheromone, yeah. which um, when one of them is under attack, it produces these little droplets. Yeah. And all the all the aphids, well, different aphid species do different things, but nettle aphids, for instance, would scatter or drop mm. off the plant. And um, some there has it has been shown that some plants will mimic that alarm pheromone. <laughs> so they just cause a general disturbance amongst those pet. You know, I mean, you just wouldn't want to live alongside that, would you be on a plant no. where there was this constant emission of something very stressful, like that there's an alarm call happening <laughs> all the time. So, yeah, so already we know that that happens. And um, so, yeah, I'm sure there are other things as well. Okay. So is there anything else you want to talk about? Um I think just to encourage everyone to keep sending in their records, it's really inspiring that so many people contribute to biological recording. And I think that as well, you know, if people are interested in biological recording, of course, I mm. love receiving their ladybird records, but there's lots of other ways in which they can get involved, like with the flower insect time counts for the pollinator, the National Pollinator Monitoring Scheme. I'd really yeah. encourage people to take a look at that, particularly if they're interested in interactions, because they can look at mm. plant-insect interactions. Also to be looking out for um, other invasive non-native species. So although we know we can't do anything about the harlequin ladybird, we do have the hope of keeping the Asian hornet out, Vespa valentina, 
And there is uh, an app, the Asian Hornet Watch app, where people can report their sightings of concern. So I would encourage people to definitely record all their ladybirds, but perhaps get involved in some other projects as well. And So there's a shield bug. Yes, there's like there an is. invasive shield bug or something, isn't there? Yes, there's a brown marmorated shield, um, shield bug or stink bug. So, yeah, I mean, all of these things, we'd be delighted to hear from people. Yeah. And we've got a lot of information on the Biological Record Centre um, website about how people can get involved in different recording um, mm. schemes and societies. And there's definitely something for everyone. Mm. I find it very interesting about the, on the sort of interaction, I find it very interesting when I'm, when seeing different ladybirds and not even just ladybirds, but just like different species of insects or maybe not even an insect like maybe sometimes like a snail or something when they're overwintering and because sometimes if you look at so for example some of the times I found 16 spots there's like 10 spots in there and like seven spots and orange ladybirds and then there's like also like like a random woodlouse or like a random shield bug and I find that really fascinating because it's like are they attracted like are they attracted to the ladybirds or do they just do they just sense that that's a good place to be I I don't know well I think there could be many questions I think you're right that's probably a good place to be but who knows that they might be getting some kind of protection from that group of ladybirds that's giving that sort of if they have a nasty taste yeah 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 exactly I again I think you know many questions that are yet Mm. to be answered but I also think that's fascinating and yeah you mentioned snails it doesn't mean Give me the opportunity to mention my one of my wonderful PhD students, Imogen, at the Royal Horticultural Society, has um, slug surveys. Slug oh, wow. So, you know, as well, do think about recording the slugs in your garden as well as um, all of uh, all of the insects that might be of interest. But, yeah. yeah, I absolutely think you're right. These kind of mixed aggregations of different species over winter is really fascinating to think why they're all hanging out together. Mm, yeah, I've always found that interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think... I, I suppose I think I think um, I mean I'm not very I know a couple of them of the major slug species but um, probably not very good at telling them apart. <laughs> well, Imogen's made some fantastic mm. sources that you can um, yeah. find online and just Google slug counts and you'll find some amazing resources and mm. um, yeah I I went to one of her training webinars on how to identify slugs and it was just fascinating. Mm. Yeah, no, very interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like, it's been absolutely fascinating. And um, all of the resources that um, you've talked about, I'll put that, I'll put a link to that in the episode description. And yeah, again, like, thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. I've absolutely loved chatting with you and your questions are just fantastic. And thank it's really, you. really lovely to chat ladybirds and a fantastic podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Right. Um, should I stop recording now? Perfect. All right. All right.